Well, good morning, everyone. This morning, we are continuing our Statement of Faith series. Uh, We're not going in order. Actually, we're going to be closer to the bottom, looking at the uh, statement on baptism and the Lord's Supper. So I'll read it for everyone. So our statement, and we do have those on the back printed off if you uh, were not aware of that, but that's the series that we're, we're going through now, just explaining our statement of faith. What is it that we believe? Why do we believe it? And we're looking at uh, the importance of uh, this morning, the Lord's Supper. So, uh, so the statement of faith, we believe for the believer that the Lord's Supper and water baptism by immersion are ordinances to be observed by the church during this present age. They are, however, not to be regarded as a means of salvation. So that is what we believe regarding the Lord's Supper and baptism. And when I was uh, originally planning this message, I had meant to cover both of them, but by the time I got done with the, my, my study and preparation on the section of the Lord's Supper, I said, I better not even try. We, we want to get out of here before 1230, don't we? So uh, we'll, pro- we'll just stick with one portion of that, and then next week I'll cover the other half of this statement. So we believe for the believer, the Lord's Supper, what we're focusing on this morning, is an ordinance to be observed by the church during this present age, and it is not to be regarded as a means of salvation. And our statement of faith points us to two different places, and we'll read those, at least regarding the Lord's Supper. The first place is Luke chapter 22. So Luke chapter 22. Verses 19 and 20, which read, And when he, Jesus, had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And the next place I want to look at is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll read verses 23 through 27. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 27. The Apostle Paul writing, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes." Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So we can pray, and then we will get on with it. Our Father, we are thankful that you have gathered us here together this morning to look at your word, to consider what it has to say, and consider the implications that it has on our own lives and our own Christian walk and practice. We're thankful that you have given us these 
ordinances, not as a means of salvation, but as pictures that are ultimately pointing to your work through the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. I pray that you would bless us this morning as we consider the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. I I pray that we would be challenged to think through what scripture teaches regarding it and that we would think through our own practice of it as we participate in it and that uh, we would uh, really have a new life and a new uh, perspective as we are looking at it, not new in the sense that it is foreign to scripture, but new in the sense that we are realigned with what the Bible teaches. I pray that you bless this time that we have. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at the ordinances of the church, and the church has given these ordinances, uh, especially the Lord's Supper, a a number of different names. You may have heard the Lord's Supper called, well, uh, the Lord's Supper. That's typically what we will call it. Something else uh, that you may hear it called is the breaking of bread. Uh, Sometimes it is called the sacrament. In fact, both uh, the Lord's Supper and baptism are called sacraments at some point. Sometimes it's called the Eucharist. Sometimes it's called communion. In uh, their book on the subject, the little Emmaus book that's out on the wall, Neil Fraser and Bill McDonald go through these names, and uh, I think, and and I wanted to go through these too, because while we may not call it uh, the Eucharist or communion, uh, all of these names that have been given to it by the church throughout time, they all carry a meaning that is true to what is actually taking place here. So I want to go through these. One thing that it's called is the sacrament, and we, we tend to uh, shy away from language like that. Sacraments are the things that the Catholics and the Lutherans do, but we, uh, evangelical Protestants, we call them ordinances. Well, uh, there's nothing, uh, there's no harm in the word itself uh, in recognizing the word itself. It's not a word that's found in Scripture, but it is a word that was used by the church early on. The word actually comes from a, a Greek word, uh, sacramentum, And what this word was, what this meant, uh, this was the oath that a Roman soldier would take. It was an oath of allegiance that he took when he joined the army, passing from civilian life to military life. And in a similar way, this was called the sacrament, this oath, this sacramentum is what separated this Roman soldier from his old life unto a new life to service to Caesar. And in a similar way, I think the Christians really latched on to this language because uh, it is this sacrament, this ordinance, or these ordinances that separate us, that serve as markers for us in our new life and service to our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been called the Eucharist, another word that we tend to shy away from, but uh, that word actually comes from the Greek word eucharisteo, and we had a whole message on Thanksgiving several months ago, and that's what that word means, to give thanks or thanksgiving. Just as Jesus gave thanks for the bread and the cup that were before him, we too give thanks for the provision of the Father and giving us the Son as the bread of life, so it's been called the Eucharist. It's been called communion, and this actually does come from uh, uh, the Bible. Communion is a a translation of the word koinonia. If you're still in the book of Corinthians, look back to chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. 
in First uh, Corinthians chapter ten, verses sixteen and seventeen, and we get this word from the, these uh, verses right here, which reads, "Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ?" And if you're reading in the New King James Version, you'll see that that word sharing is literally rendered as communion. Is it not a communion in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a communion in the body of Christ? Uh, since, we, uh, since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, we all partake in the body Uh, We all partake in one bread. So that's where that word comes from, communion. And and that really is pointing to the fact that the Lord's Supper really is a communal event. It's an event where believers all come together, gather as one, uh, to remember, to recall the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come together as one body, communing with one another. It's called the Lord's Supper. That's what we call it here. The Lord's Supper, and this signifies the fact that this is not our supper. As I mentioned this morning, as we were celebrating this, this is the Lord's Supper, which he graciously invites us to participate in. We are coming to the Lord's table at the Lord's Supper, and he is the one who is present with us. And we should be conscious of the fact that we are in his presence when we participate. And it's also been called the breaking of bread, and uh, it's pretty obvious why. What did Jesus do? He took bread and broke it. That's the same thing that we do. Uh, In the book uh, by Neil Fraser and William MacDonald says that this title that we give to it perhaps suggests how its simplicity is fitted into the believer's life. When we come together, we're not uh, throwing an extravagant ceremony or anything like that. It really is as simple as gathering around a loaf, breaking it, and share it. It's a simple act of obedience and remembrance, just as it was when it was first instituted. We don't need a special place to do this. We don't need special holy bread and wine that are set apart. We don't need a special priest. We don't need a special ceremony. It's as simple as it is today when it was first instituted by the Lord Jesus, the simple taking of bread and breaking it. As we read, uh, as we read those verses, we see that it is the Lord Jesus who instituted this supper. He is the one who uh, gave us the, the picture of it. He is the one who first put it into practice and then told his church to obey. This took place during the Passover meal. And this meal, there's a lot of similarities between the Passover meal and what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. The Passover was practiced by the people of Israel from the time that they were redeemed from Egypt. And to have an understanding of the Passover and the significance of that can perhaps help give us some understanding of the significance behind what we see at the Lord's Supper. The Passover... Uh, was very everything that was at the Passover carried uh, had a very symbolic nature about it. Uh, everything on the table was a picture of something beyond it. And just as the Passover pointed to something beyond it, the Lord's Supper likewise points to something beyond it. Uh, everything carries a symbolic meaning. And that's what the Lord, uh, that's what God the Father had said when he instituted this, that the Passover would be a memorial for them and they should celebrate the feast uh, to the Lord. Throughout their generations, they are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. And it's interesting, that word memorial uh, 
in the Greek translation of the Old Testament shares, a very, shares the same root of the word that Jesus uses, do this in remembrance of me. So they're both remembrances, they're both memorials to something that God has done. At the table that was at the Passover and at the table that Jesus and his disciples even had before him at the, on the night that he was betrayed, there's a number of different things on it. One of the things that is found on the table are bitter herbs. And it just wasn't, it wasn't there just because the food needed some flavoring, but these bitter herbs uh, carried with it uh, a symbolic meaning. Uh, the book of Exodus, ap- Exodus chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, I'll just read it. We read that the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor and with mortar and bricks and that, all that kind of labor in the field, and all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. And it's thought that those bitter herbs were pointing back to the bitterness of slavery, the bitterness of being enslaved to the Egyptians and the hardship that came from it. On the table was unleavened bread. In Exodus chapter 12, uh, verse 15, the Lord tells the people, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your house. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off. And a few chapters later, he, sa- he says that you shall not eat uh, leavened bread with the Passover. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, so that you may remember all the days of your life, the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. So the bread, likewise, was a picture of not only their affliction, but their hasty rescue from the Lord Jesus. And when you're cooking something quickly, leaven takes time to go through the lump. So if you want a quick uh, bite and you're making bread as they did in that day, to not put leaven implies that it was a quick meal. Uh, Leaven, uh, similarly also, especially in the New Testament, is thought to symbolize sin and how even the smallest little bit of sin eventually spreads through an entire person, an entire community, an entire church, an entire city. And the New Testament sometimes even uses leaven as this picture. Jesus warns of the leaven of the Pharisees. Uh, The Apostle Paul says a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump in reference to false teaching spreading throughout the church. So there's unleavened bread there for uh, those reasons. And then finally, the centerpiece of the Passover feast was the Passover lamb. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 5, God says that your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or the goats. And then later on in that chapter, he says, it's to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any flesh, any flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. And all the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. So the centerpiece was this unblemished, perfect lamb. Uh, a year old taken from the flock uh, without a bone of it to be broken. So everything at the table, everything that was before them, the night the Lord was betrayed, carried a symbol behind it. But they were symbols pointing back to the old covenant, pointing back to the redemption of God, of the, uh, the redemption of the people of Israel. But Jesus here at the Lord's Supper says that he is instituting a new covenant. 
that's what is said uh, regarding, especially regarding the cup. And the cup was something that was not seen in, at least at the first Passover. But at the days of Jesus, there was something new on the table. There were these four cups, four cups of wine. And these four cups were representative of the promises that God made to the people of Israel before Exodus. So these four promises that are found in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, say to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out. That is the first promise. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. That's the second promise. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm, third promise, and then I will take you for my people and I will be your God, the fourth promise. So at some point between the initial uh, ordinate, ordinate, uh, the initial uh, Passover and the time of Jesus, this new practice had been involved where throughout the meal, uh, a cup would be raised. The cup of, I will bring you out, that is raised and drink. The cup of, I will deliver, I will redeem, I will take you. All these cups looking back at these promises that God had made to the people of Israel. And that is why at the Lord's Supper we find a cup. So the Lord Jesus institutes this new practice uh, while they're celebrating the Passover. While the Passover was a memorial feast, it also looked forward to the true Lamb of God that would be offered as the perfect sacrifice to take away sin. The Passover in and of itself is not complete. Rather, it is foretelling something that is going to come along later. And it's fitting that it is at the Passover, using what was already at the table, that Jesus inaugurates the Lord's Supper for his followers to partake in. And we'd already read the passages. What does Jesus do? He takes some of the bread that's on the table, that unleavened bread that is used, and he gives it a new picture. He says, this is my body given for you. The bread, a picture of his body given and broken for the life of the world. Now, just as the emblems that were on the table at the Passover were not actually what they represented. Those bitter herbs were just bitter herbs. They pointed to the bitterness of slavery. Uh, That bread was just bread. It it itself was not sinful or anything like that. The bread itself that Jesus picks up does not change. It is just bread. However, it is a picture in that bread of the true bread of life that is given by the Father that gives life to all who believe. Jesus, in John chapter 6, when he's speaking to the crowd, says that I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Later on in that same discourse, the Lord Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that has came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So what is that bread a picture of? Well, a picture of that true bread from heaven. How is it that we have eternal life? Not through something that we eat, but through someone whom we entrust ourselves to, the Lord Jesus Christ. Similarly, he picks up the cup 
uh, one of the four cups. Perhaps it might have been a fifth cup. We're not going to get into that discussion or debate. But he takes one of these cups and he says, This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. While the first Passover did not have these cups, there was something that the first Passover did have that the Lord Jesus uh, also includes in this new meal, and that is the shedding of blood. In Exodus chapter 12, 6 and 7, we read that the people of Israel were to take a lamb spotless without blemish. They were to keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses which they, in which they eat it. And then the Lord God says, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments, for I am the Lord. And the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So blood is found at the Old Covenant and blood also found at the New Covenant through the shedding of the blood of Jesus, pictured by this cup that is on the table. Just as there is blood shed at the uh, Passover, there is also blood blood shed at the inauguration of the covenant between God and the people of Israel at Sinai. Remember, there were sacrifices made when God had given the people of Israel the book of the law. The people said, this we will do. And what happened? A goat was, or an animal was slaughtered. Its blood was sprinkled on the pages of the book of the covenant and the blood was sprinkled on the people. Of this, the author of Hebrews says in chapter nine of the book of Hebrews, therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the people he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet and wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, One may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So it's fitting that at this new covenant, this new covenant that was being inaugurated by Jesus, there would be blood. And what does Jesus say? This is the cup of my blood. This is the blood of a new, of a better covenant between God and his people. The blood, not of bulls, Not of goats, but the blood of Jesus shed on the cross as a propitiation for sins. And I'll just highlight this again. Something that we need to keep in mind is that it's not the physical elements that are at focus. Just as at the Passover, it's not the physical elements uh, of the Passover meal that were the focus, but rather what they represented just, and the Lord's Supper is the same way. It's not the physical elements that are in focus, but what they represent. The bread is still bread. The wine is still wine. But we look beyond these pictures to the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross 
on our behalf. Even the Lord Jesus says to, uh, to eat of this bread of life is to believe in him whom the to believe in him. The early church likewise believed this as well. Uh, one of the early Christians, a man by the name of Augustine, says this regarding the Lord's Supper. So they said to him then, what shall we do to work the works of God? Referring to John chapter 6. For he had said to them, work not for the food which perishes, but that which abides to eternal life. What shall we do, they say? What observances must we keep if we are to comply with this instruction? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So this is to eat the food which does not perish, but which abides to eternal life. And then he says this, Why are you getting your teeth and your stomachs ready? Believe, and you have already eaten. Similarly, he says this, uh, once again, quoting from Scripture, Unless you eat, he says, the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall not have life in you. And that's a quotation of John chapter 6, verse 53. He seems to be commanding a crime or an act of infamy because how outrageous would it be if we were to truly eat the physical flesh of the Lord Jesus? Uh, so it is said figuratively, instructing us that we must share in the Lord's passion and store away in our minds the sweet and useful memory that his flesh was crucified and wounded for our sakes. In the same way, when we take that bread and drink from the cup, it is not that physical act that does anything. Rather, we are looking back to that one great act of the Lord Jesus and giving his flesh and shedding his blood for us. This is the blood of a new and everlasting covenant, uh, according to the Lord Jesus. What is, the, what is this new covenant? Well, turn with me, if you will, to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and I want to read verses 1 through 18. The author of Hebrews, I think, I think this book more than any other, uh, explains for us what the Lord's Supper really is pointing to. But we see here in just these first few verses of the book of Hebrews that there is a need for a new covenant. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. There is no forgiveness to be found by the offering of rams. Uh, we read, For the law, since it, only, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of the things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins." But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So before the sacrifice of Christ, what was there? The Passover, yes. There were the various other uh, sacrifices that were commanded to be offered, yes. But the reality is, none of these sacrifices in and of themselves have the power to take away sins. And that is our problem. The fact that we have a sin debt that we cannot pay. A bull can't pay my sin debt. A goat can't pay my sin debt. There needs to be a new covenant. And there is. Therefore, back to the author, back to Hebrews verse 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired 
but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, to, I have come and the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God." And after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. What's the Lord Jesus do at the Lord's Supper? Well, he's establishing that new covenant. And he's pointing to that sacrifice that is made a better sacrifice, a sacrifice that is better than the sacrifice of bulls and goats, the sacrifice of the God-man, the one who can truly take away sins. And because there is a better sacrifice in this new covenant, there are better results in this new covenant. And what are those results? Verse 10, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. What an amazing reality. Those old covenants, what did the author say of them? Those were reminders of sin year by year. Every single time they were to gather together and offer a sacrifice, what was that sacrifice saying? That the last one wasn't enough. That every single year, every single time I come and offer a sacrifice, that is not enough. There's still a sin debt. The wages of sin is still death. And I'm reminded of that death that I am owed every single time that the sacrifice is made. Every single day of atonement, every single Passover, every single daily and weekly sacrifice, reminder of sin. But the sacrifice of Jesus, what does that do? By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Then the author of Hebrews really illustrates this. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies are put as a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Perfected for all time. Why is it that we do not have a sacrifice the way way that the people of Israel of old did? Why is it that every week we do not need to offer our own bull or goat? Are not the wages of sin still death? Indeed they are. But that death was experienced by the Lord Jesus. And because of that, because of that one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. And then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will Remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering of sin. The old covenant, reminder of sin year by year. The new covenant, we do not come to remember our sin. We do not come to acknowledge that we are owed death. Rather, we come to remember 
the one who offered himself. And in this new covenant, what does it say? Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. That is what this meal, that is what the Lord's Supper points to. That new covenant. And we get to be renewed in our remembrance of that, of what Jesus did every single time we come together and partake in the Lord's Supper. Because this ordinance was not just for Jesus and the first disciples to practice, but Jesus uh, put it in place for all of his followers at every time and place to participate in. This is something that's exclusive for believers, those who have repented and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who uh, have believed those promises of that new covenant and trusted in that one perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And this is to be practiced by God's people in all ages. We see that it's practiced in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, verse 46, we read that the early church, day by day with one mind in the temple, and uh, day by day they continued with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. So that is something that they did routinely, breaking bread, remembering what the Lord Jesus had done for them. Similarly, in Acts chapter 20, we read that on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. And you think my messages are long. But what happens? What, what happens at the beginning of that first day of the week when they gather together? Well, they gather together to break bread. So the Lord's Supper is to be practiced by God's people. There are also implications for it. We read in 1 Corinthians uh, verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. The Lord's Supper is not just something we are to participate in flippantly. This is not just us gathering around for a snack before the message. Rather, we need to recall what it's pointing to, and we need to participate in a worthy manner. What does that mean? Well, it means that we must examine ourselves. The Apostle Paul says in verse 28 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, "...but a man must examine himself." And in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world." So we're to examine ourselves before partaking in the Lord's Supper. This does not mean that only those who have reached sinless perfectionism are to participate. The Apostle Paul says uh, a man must examine himself and in so doing eat eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we are to examine ourselves. And the Lord's Supper, leading up to the Lord's Supper, we really should take the time to look at ourselves, to look at our past week, to look at our account before God and, our confess, and to confess our sins before the Lord. Again, trusting in that perfect sacrifice pictured in the Lord's Supper, that perfect sacrifice that takes away all sin. I want to read a passage out of 1 John. If you want to turn to, to 1 John, 
Not John 1, 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 6. John says this, If we say that we have fellowship with him, and there's that word again, fellowship, literally communion. If we say that we have communion with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is light, we have communion with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us of all sin. So when we examine ourselves, it is not so that we can condemn ourselves. Rather, it is so that we can look to the Lord Jesus. It's so that we can look to God. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we come to the Lord's Supper in a flippant way saying, oh yes, I have made myself worthy of this. Oh yes, uh, I, I lived a perfect week this week. We're a liar because it's a time to examine ourselves. And if we do examine ourselves, and if we do confess our sins, we read that he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So how is it that we can approach the Lord's table? Well, because we have that advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. That is the one that we come to remember. That is what the whole celebration is about. It's about looking to the Lord Jesus, remembering what he has done for us. Remembering that perfect sacrifice made on the cross, considering that new covenant which was established by his blood that we are benefactors of, the forgiveness of sins that comes along with it. So what are we doing when we participate in the Lord's Supper? Why is it so important that every single week we gather together to share in the Lord's Supper? Well, uh, one thing that we do is that we commune with Christ and with his people. There's that word communion again, going back to that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. Is not the blood of blessing which we bless a communion in the blood of Christ? Is not the, the bread in which we break a communion in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many, for we all partake of this one loaf. So we, it's a time for us to come together to acknowledge who we all are together in Christ and that we indeed are with Christ. When we come together, so first, we commune with Christ and with his people. Second, we come to remember Christ. We come to remember what he did. The Lord's Supper is not a re-sacrificing of Christ. It's not a re-presenting of that sacrifice of Christ. Rather, it is us looking back at that perfect sacrifice of Christ that takes away sins. The author of Hebrews, remember what he said about these old sacrifices, that these sacrifices are a remembrance of sins. You don't want to be part of that old covenant because that's all that you have, a remembrance of sin. 
But in this new covenant, we have a remembrance of a Savior, the one who takes away our sins. When we come together, it's not to remember our own sin driving us to despair, but it's a remembrance of that perfect sin bearer, the one who gave his body and shed his blood for us. When we come together, we are proclaiming the death of the Lord. We are acknowledging and proclaiming that Jesus did indeed die for us, that his death was our death, that he is our perfect substitute. When we partake in the Lord's Supper, we are saying, this is mine. The body of Jesus was given for me. The blood of Jesus was shed for me. I have died with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 11, now, that if, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. So death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So even consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. We come together and say, Jesus died, that was my death. He gave his body for me. He shed his blood for me. When my sins are forgiven because of what he has done. So we come together, we proclaim his death, but we also look forward to his return. When we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the death of the Lord until his return. So when we're participating in the Lord's Supper, we're not only saying that Jesus did die, that his death was my death, but we're saying he is going to come back. It is our way to proclaim that our Savior, the one who died and rose again, is still alive to this day and he is going to return. We're proclaiming that the Lord is going to return in glory. We know that he's going to return. Remember what the angels said to the, to the apostles after they were looking into the sky after Jesus ascended into heaven? Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, he is going to come back just the way you have watched him go. When Jesus comes back, Justice is going to be carried out. That's another thing that we're proclaiming. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make everything right. Justice will be served. Justice will be carried out. As the Apostle Paul says to the Thessalonians, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. We look forward to his coming. We uh, acknowledge he's going to return. We acknowledge that justice is going to come out. And as we participate in the Lord's Supper, it should be a reminder for us that we need to be prepared for his coming. And again, preparing for his coming doesn't mean we just stand there staring into the sky waiting for him to come back. Uh, rather, the Lord Jesus says that the coming of the Lord is going to be like uh, a man on a, away from a journey upon uh, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one a task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on alert. 
Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether it is in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case that he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you all is be on the alert. And we need to be reminded too, as we participate in the Lord's Supper, be on the alert, because he's going to return, and how is he going to find us at his coming? Therefore, in conclusion, I know uh, this may not have been what many of you expected. We didn't get into conversations regarding, uh, well, do we need to use leavened bread or unleavened bread or uh, fermented wine or grape juice or how many times are we supposed to celebrate it? I wanted to go a little bit deeper than that. I wanted to look at what is the purpose that this was established? What is it picturing for us every single time that we come in? Uh, There are conversations that are worth having regarding these things, but We need to be focused on what they're pointing to, not just on the symbols themselves. So, in conclusion, we need to remember that the Lord's time, the Lord's Supper, is a time to reaffirm our commitment to Christ, to give thanks to what he has done for us, and to commune with Christ and with his people. It's a remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ, that one perfect sacrifice that takes away sins, the giving of his body and the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of sins, and the eternal life that we receive as a result. And then finally, when we come and participate in the Lord's Supper, it's a proclamation that we belong to Jesus, that his death was ours, that our sins are no more, and that he is going to return, and when he does, we are going to be with him forever. Let's go to the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for what you have done through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the institution of the Lord's Supper, this reminder that we have week by week of what the Lord Jesus has done, of this new covenant that is inaugurated by his blood, of the forgiveness of sins that we can be guaranteed of through it. I pray, Father, that we would recall the Lord Jesus, that we would live in light of what he has done, that we would live in light of these promises that we uh, remember and celebrate every single week, that his death was ours, his burial was ours, his resurrection is ours, and he is going to return to draw us to himself. I pray that we would have a renewed understanding of the Lord's Supper and everything that it points to, that we would have a renewed conviction of how important it is to celebrate this with you. And I pray that you would bless the rest of our day and our week in light of everything that we've considered this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.